More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. On this episode of the Family Business Voice, Dr. Jamie Weiner and Russ Hayworth talk about their new project, The Quest for Legitimacy. In it, they explore the unique struggles of those growing up in family enterprises and how it impacts their lives and sense of identity. We talked about the legacy of Queen Elizabeth and King Charles III's recent ascension to the throne. Russ and Jamie also explored the typical transition points the rising gen journey includes within the family enterprise. Enjoy this episode with Russ and Jamie. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Family Business Voice. I am delighted to be joined today by Jamie Weiner and Russ Hayworth, who are the co-directors of the project, The Quest for Legitimacy. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. I think we just agreed when we came on to this uh, podcast recording session that we have to mark today. Uh, today is the, the first day that the world has woken up to a day without Queen Elizabeth of England. And I think it's a monumental moment for most of us. We were just talking about the fact that many of us don't even remember a day without this woman on the throne or without this woman in existence. And I think we need to just mark this moment, but also... We need to talk about it because this podcast actually is very, very relevant to what's about to happen right now uh, to the royal family and what's happening right now in terms of this monumental succession moment that everyone has been, or I think Prince, like King Charles III has been waiting for for so long. And so I think my first question here, or like my first question, maybe throwing this comment at the both of you. In view of the legitimacy, uh, the quest for legitimacy project, and also the book that that Jamie wrote about it, when the Queen passed yesterday, what was your first reaction in the context of the book that you've just written? Like, what were your first thoughts when it came to, you know, what is going to happen now for the next generation? What must the feelings be of the next generation in the royal family? I could picture Russ and I having interviewed Charles as one of the subjects for the research project. So it's the death of the Queen, but it's finally the announcement that Charles is no longer a rising gen family member and is ascending to the throne. Probably Russ and I have slightly different experiences because I'm in the United States and he's in the heart of it in England. And I think, Rami, you summed it up at the sort of the outset. Is we've not known a time where the Queen hasn't been present in our lives, and that's in her her job role, if you like, as the Queen of uh, England, United Kingdom, and the Commonwealth. But but on top of that, she was a mother, a grandmother, and I think the the context of what we're talking about with regards to the rising gen and uh, their quest for legitimacy, how we can relate what's happened with uh, the Queen recently and, as you say, King Charles' uh, sort of ascension to the throne, it's separating out the fact that there is this human element to it because it's his mother that's passed away, but also the fact that he's been 73 years 
in the kind of waiting to take on this role as monarch and it's an incredible period. I think it's very interesting what you talk about in the book, because I believe you talk about this concept of giants. And I, I really can draw this inspired from Queen Elizabeth, because to me, she was she was a giant, because for her to have done what she has done with quite remarkable professionalism, and really, there is no roadmap to being queen, right? Like, there's no roadmap, because even if you draw upon the queens of previous centuries, like obviously totally different time, totally different context. And so she she was also an incredible innovator and someone who really was a founder in her own generation, I would say, for what she's done. And I think this is the type of legacy that we often face as next-gen family members when we take over from the founding generation or even from a very innovative previous generation that has changed things massively, increased the wealth or grown the company. So talk to us a little bit about this concept of how you talked to these rising gens that are featured in the book. Why do we like to make them into giants? Why are these people so giantesque to us? You know, what a great example. If we were interviewing King Charles somewhere in the, the course of the way the question we would have asked him is, what is it like growing up in the land of giants? And we asked that question to 25 rising gen family members, and not one of them stopped and said, what do you mean giant? Immediately they understood and they could identify the giant. And for us, the whole world can identify that the queen was a giant. And the unusual nature of a woman giant, because most of the giants we heard about were men. And most of the space talks about the knowledge that somebody has to have, the skills. And what we discovered was that there's really a path for those who grow up in the land of giants, in these prominent um, families. And... This is also a wonderful example of the prominence being more important, the wealth or the business or all of the things that lived behind Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, another element on that as well is King Charles is 73 years old. And up until yesterday would be considered as a rising gen. And I think that sometimes gets lost as well that we call compartmentalize people into an age bracket of your next gen until you're say 40 or 45 or whatever the age bracket suggests but what we found in the research is that the rising generation is not bound by age it's bound by the position in which they find themselves in the family enterprise or in the family and it's much more around the mindset of rising as opposed to it being bound by you know you get to 30 you're no longer a rising gen you are it King Charles is a, a prime example of the, the fact that he was a rising generation at the age of 73. When you were doing the interviews with these people, and you did, I believe you did interviews before and after COVID, which I think very interesting, of course, points in time to compare and contrast. What did they talk to you about in terms of like that sense of belonging and why isn't it enough? Why does there need to be this sense of like proving yourself to be worthy of the family enterprise? So Jamie began the project and reached out to me to help him capture and collate the interviews. 
we then picked up an academic research team further into the, the project. We didn't start with, with that in mind. But Jamie and I would come off of the conversations that we'd have with the rising gen and we'd, we'd share some thoughts and we thought we could see some patterns emerging in the experiences of these individuals in their life has led them to where they are today. The introduction of an academic research team, we were able to kind of label those common occurrences. So it helped to uh, effectively sort of qualify the fact that we were seeing these patterns. One of the overwhelming patterns that we saw from and heard from the participants was how isolating an experience it can be growing up in a prominent family, because not everybody grows up in that environment. And so your peers, your friends, the support network you have around you may not necessarily relate to the fact that it can feel very isolating. So if you imagine, so, and I'm completely making this up, I don't know Prince Charles at all, but you imagine him as a 30-year-old thinking, well, this is quite an isolating experience growing up as the son of a monarch. Where does he go to for support? Because there aren't a huge amount of people that grow up in those similar circumstances. And that's what we found with the participants as well, was that there was this isolating factor for their by growing up within a prominent family. Our mission, Jamie and I's mission now is to help address that and alleviate that because that was one of the recurring themes that we heard throughout the interviews. You know, Russ, I'm surprised. I really thought you knew Prince Charles when he was 30. <laughs> um, Afraid not. But I think this family is such a, a great example for everybody because it's not just Charles. This is a family that all of the children and grandchildren have been, have had breaking moments. They've had moments where they've had pain and struggle in their lives that clearly have affected the queen, but also were moments where they had to rethink who they were and what their path was. And it was all done probably more so in history publicly rather than kind of being like in most families, trying to keep it under wraps so nobody can see it. And, you know, even Harry, the grandson, was on Oprah talking about the family enterprise and the concerns about the family enterprise. You talk about the transition points and breaking points. Can you tell us a little bit more about these two things, but also can you tell us whether a breaking point can actually be a transition point? Because I feel like that can often come hand in hand. I'm going to push it a step further. <laughs> Not only could it be a growth point and a transition point, it should be a growth point and a transition point. And thinking about families, divorces, all the things that go on, even getting married. So You know, we interviewed Henry Kaiser, who was third generation from the Kaiser family, that in some ways was at one point one of the wealthiest families in the world. Grandfather was involved in building the Hoover Dam. This was a huge family, a, a central point of the Industrial Revolution. And here he is, third generation, and he's grown up. He's been told he's to prepare for something. And lo and behold, as he marries, he is told that his grandfather is too ill to come to the, his wedding. And he goes and sits with him, expecting that's going to be the moment that grandfather 
and him can have a conversation about is there a role in Kaiser Industries for him? And grandfather couldn't recognize the need to have the conversation, and he couldn't ask. And for him, that was the beginning of a series of events, what I would call a period of liminality, of being betwixt and between, that led to him really needed, needing to sort out his life. But it all started with a marriage, which was an exciting moment, a happy moment in his life. I love the word quest. Talk to us about this concept of the quest. So where does the idea of using this word come from? And then also, and I love this question, actually, that I have to confess my team brought forward, asking about whether a quest is embarked on spontaneously or are there always pressure points or do you need to encourage rising gens to get on that quest? Or do, or do you see it happening organically in most cases? Jamie and I spotted patterns in the interviews that we had. But by placing it through a non-emotional filter of the, the academic research, they were able to identify the four phases that we've, uh, or Jamie has written about within the book. And the four phases that the research team provided us with we needed to google some of the words to kind of understand what they meant in academic terms <laughs> but what, what we've been able to do is is translate that through jamie's excellent writing into four phases so the first phase is awareness that's something you're aware that something is different about your life and again in relation to the royal family as an example when you're born into a royal family you don't choose that but at some point in your upbringing you will recognize that there is something different about the way your life is compared to other people. You then have the second phase, which is the tug of war, which is the kind of, I've, I've grown up within uh, this environment. I'm aware of, of my reality, but I'm also aware there's another reality out there. And um, there's different things that being experienced outside of this institution of my family compared to what's happening within it. And that can lead to the third phase, which is an exploration of that. So it's kind of going out and, and looking at what the experiences that world can result in. It's looking at the family side becoming much more internalized and kind of growing your own legitimacy through that exploration. And the final phase of that is then ownership. And we don't mean ownership. I mean, ownership in family business terms is often referred to as ownership of the shares or assets within the, the enterprise family office, et cetera. We're talking about personal ownership. It's taking ownership of your life and the things that are, are happening within your life, which leads to legitimacy. But the point you made, and you made it really well earlier, is it's not linear. We like things to be organized in stage one, two, three, four, and then we're kind of at the other side, every, everything's uh, hunky-dory. But there can be moments of awareness, tug-of-war exploration, and then ownership that then lead to another moment of awareness, which can then lead to further tug of war, exploration and ownership. So it's a lifelong quest that we're all on in pursuit of legitimacy. Let me touch on the question about does it just sort of happen? Or, you know, is it something that should be consciously thought about? And so obviously the people we interviewed it just happened. And I think that's part of the reason that there's the isolation 
Russ and I are working on building out the first retreat that we're going to have, because I think there really is a way, and I think there's a way even to do it in different parts of the globe, so that Rising Gen can consciously take a look at the path of what's involved in going through the phases and rising and taking agency, feeling that you have control over who you are. And I totally believe that if you have a sense of agency and you need to figure out the financial things, you need to figure out governance, you need to figure out all the parts of what goes on with the family, or I grew up in a rabbi's family, you begin to figure out how you fit in a larger world, you're going to do it because it's just part of, of defining yourself. Many of us, of course, we deal with the reality that because we are from enterprising families, it feels like very often there is a lot of noise and it is loud and it is big. How do you deal with those pressures versus going on your quest, right? Like, so how do you make sure that those pressures don't overshadow? How do you sort of like first tune that out a little bit or maybe like lessen that sense of, you know, that sense of pressure to even be able to get your thoughts clear and in a row to even embark on something like this? What you're talking about is extremely important because um, the pressure is not just from the family, the pressure is from the world. Uh, it's much bigger about, I mean, inheritance documents are drawn up without you know, I mean, you're usually not part of it. Succession plans are done, and they don't necessarily come and have a conversation with the next gen about how are we going to handle succession. And I grew up in a prominent family and religious, you know, Jewish family, and the synagogue, the camp my father founded, and all of that was the world that sort of was part of my existence and much more powerful than the public schools I went to and all that kind of other stuff. And at some point, you can rebel against it. But if you want to, want to figure out who you are, you do have to sort out where do you fit in that? And there needs to be some room within the family, which I think is the challenge for the generation before. How do you create room but still create safety? We're all individuals and we're trying to find our place in the world. And by spending some time dealing with that and looking at that on an individual basis, the role that clarity can play in helping to define the roles of rising gen in the future. If somebody is unsure about it and feels the pressure and hasn't had that opportunity to explore their own thoughts and feelings around legitimacy and, and how they can have agency and contribute to, to the world, it can be very easy to be swept up in the kind of, here's how the balance sheet works, here's how money works, here's how investments work. And that can lead to challenges in the future where people feel trapped, where people feel isolated, where they feel like they're this is not the life I had anticipated or um, reminded of the scene from Lion King where you know, Simba's held up in front of the prime and said, this is all yours. He's got no choice in that. It's just the virtue of birth order for him. And I think that happens a lot within family enterprises as well, is that the path consciously or unconsciously can be decided very early on without that exploration of what do I want? You interviewed 24 rising gens for the book, correct? Like this 24. So 
Can I ask how many were men and how many were women? It was about evenly split. Any marked differences between the men and the women in terms of like how they looked at the situation that they were in or how they recognized their quests or how they how much ownership, I guess, like to, speaking of you of the fourth phase, how much ownership they eventually took for for their fate? Like, did you see any marked differences? Did the academics find something, Russ, like <laughs> that you didn't see before? <laughs> so it's cute because when I went to write the chapter in the book, I had a conversation with uh, Leah Boyce, who is a woman who runs, runs a family office out of Australia. In Melbourne, yeah. yeah. And she said to me, something about, I hope you're not going to write. I was getting ready to write the chapter about women. She says, I hope you're not going to write up the chapter about our role as the communicators or the glue in the family or all of that kind of stuff. So I was very nervous writing the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> as a man. You ought to be. You ought to be. <laughs> and what I decided to do was to take three stories of three different women who were very different. And one is kind of a classic example, so I'll just use that. She grew up in a family, and third or fourth generation, and as she's stepping into a role on the board, she's reminded of her grandfather saying, if there's ever a woman going to be a woman in the boardroom, she's going to be serving tea. And women couldn't get cheers of ownership, Women couldn't work in the business, and obviously women couldn't be on the board. And she also was a couple weeks after delivering a baby. And so at some point, she had to ask the board whether she could take an hour break so she could breastfeed. I need a sound on this podcast for when I'm rolling my eyes, otherwise no one knows. <laughs> I'm doing it right now, right. okay? Like it's a massive eye roll happening at my end. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, so my read as a man is it's far hard, harder as a woman to balance all the things that you need to balance. And, you know, I don't know if any, you have anything you want to add about it, but her story is a very powerful story because she really broke a glass ceiling and now is impacting the generation afterwards. One of the questions that I asked towards the end of the second interviews was, do you now perceive yourself as a giant? And it took a few of the participants aback. They were kind of, oh, I've never thought of it like that. But actually, yes, I probably am a giant. And because the split of the, the interviews was, was broadly 50-50, the giants in people's lives were not split that way in terms of gender role. But now, because the, there have been those societal breakthroughs and the kind of understanding that comments like you can't be in the boardroom unless you're making the, the tea as a woman are, are entirely unacceptable, that, that shift has happened and women have become giants in their own rights, having fought against the sort of rules that have been set out for them before them. And so the example that they're able to then set for future generations is incredible because it starts to break down those gender roles rather than it being, you know, you have to be a certain way in order to succeed. They've shown that that doesn't have to be the case. So it was 
it's very encouraging to see that because we know the, the benefits of diversity in that sense. But hold on, is it actually a good thing that we encourage people to think of, of themselves as giants? Is this something we actually want to perpetuate? Aren't we setting up the next generation with the exact same challenges if we're making <laughs> these people into giants now? So this was really interesting. So we spoke to people about their perception of themselves as, as giants and the fact that they could recognize that they were perhaps perceived as giants by other people also allowed them to humanize the giants in their lives because they see themselves as, well, hang on, if I'm perceived as a giant and yet I'm still struggling on my own quest and I'm still working through my own things, that must mean that my parents, grandparents, whoever the giants were in their lives are also far more human than perhaps I thought. I also think it's kind of inevitable. I mean, I could ask you because you grew up in a family and I know what you've accomplished. And so to, to some degree, you have one of two choices. Either you do something that allows you to feel like you can at least walk in the land of giants and are significant enough, have taken enough ownership, or you continue to feel like you're not enough and you're not measuring up. And, and I know some of the people we interviewed were extremely successful and still didn't feel us that, that sense of legitimacy. And so we're really differentiating between success and that internal sense that you're enough, that you've done enough, or at least you're, we're always doing more. What are sort of the first few questions I need to ask myself? Like, what are the first few steps that I should be taking in order to feel that, you know, I'm going to materially actually change my outlook on my, on my personal situation within the family enterprise? So I think the first one and the goal of really writing the book was to have a moment that you can begin to feel that you're not alone and to kind of go, this is common. It's not part of even using the term prominence. Is there are a lot of people who grow up in families where there's prominence and there may not be wealth or there may be, you know, reasonable amounts of wealth. Even in poorer communities, there are people who grow up prominent in those communities. And I think that's really important. But I think the second thing to ask, and we're in the middle of developing a little quiz to go on the website, was where am I in the quest? Because even identifying that, Kind of, it's like, oh, well, I may go back into awareness. That's okay. But am I in the tug of war or have I really emerged in an, into a period of exploration? And is there room for that exploration? And where do I take agency in my life and, and where am I struggling with it? What we're seeing is the growth comes from people going through those processes, through going through the phases within the quest, using a generic example of COVID, that was a big breaking moment for all of us. And yet a lot of the growth, a lot of the personal growth that has come from that is a result of us embracing that and having that agency, but also leading us to what drives us from a, a purpose perspective. There's been much more focus on that since that. And that's a global breaking point and a global period of liminality in the context of, of what we discovered on the quest. So 
identifying that there is a, a path is really important. Identifying you're not alone is really important. Uh, and there is help out there f- for you as well. The quest for legitimacy will be linking to where you can get the book below this podcast. This episode with Jamie and Russ has been dedicated, I would say, to Queen Elizabeth. And we are mourning her passing, celebrating King Charles coming into power with this podcast and beautiful context to have this conversation in. Beautiful content, guys, that is going to help so many people. Also, maybe even understand what's happening right now with the royal family. Imagine a little bit what kind of emotions people are up against. We haven't even spoken about what this puts uh, Prince William in, in terms of a situation as, you know, now actual rising gen. Maybe that's another episode (laughs) that we should be be tackling what that means when you go from rising, rising to rising and sort of like are really, truly next in line. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us on the Family Business Voice. Thank you, Rambia. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.